podcast one production. Hey, I'm Matt Dwyer, and welcome to Sleep, where Professor Harriet Hiscock and Associate Professor Emma Sriberis from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute help you identify sleeping problems in your children from infancy through to secondary school and give you easy to understand steps to improve their sleep cycles and overall health. Over the series, we've gone from talking about sleep in infancy all the way through to adolescence and how we manage their healthy sleep cycles. But one thing we haven't really gotten onto yet is special populations, two of the main ones being ADHD and autism. Harriet, do we approach these differently? And how do the sleep cycles change for special populations? Yeah, well, I might talk a little bit about autism and then throw over to Emma to talk about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. So, you know, autism is now thought to affect, some estimates will say one in 60, but certainly one in 100 Australian children. So we're not quite sure why, but we're certainly seeing more and more of it. And I think partly that's better recognition. And children with autism, you know, up to 70% of them will have a problem with their sleep at some stage during their lifetime. So it's incredibly common. And that can often start with the infant sort of sleep problems, toddler sleep problems we've talked about. So by and large, they're quite similar problems. But there's a few different things with children who are on the autism spectrum about their sleep. One is they um, can get into very long pre-bedtime routines and everything has to happen exactly the same way or they get very stressed and anxious. So their hand has to be held a certain way. They have to be patted a certain number of times or the parent has to read the same book every night again and again. And if they deviate, then the child gets really upset. So that sort of set patterning is common. The other issue that we see in children with autism that we don't often see in other kids is that they can be awake for two or three hours overnight. So they get off to sleep with or without their parent um, and then they wake at about, you know, 1am and they're awake for two or three hours and then they go back to sleep again. And sometimes that's okay because they stay in their room and they just um, play in their room and they don't disrupt the rest of the household, but it becomes a real problem if they're getting out of their room and waking up their parents or other siblings as well. And that's really disturbing for everyone. And it also means that child's not getting enough sleep um, and that can affect, you know, have flow-on effects to their behaviour and their learning the next day. Mm, and I'm sure the autism spectrum is so broad. Very, So. Yeah. I guess you would be really approaching each case so specifically. Yeah, but some of the, um, certainly all the good sleep hygiene, the good sleep patterns and habits still apply. So, Mm -hmm. you know, no screen time an hour before bed, no caffeine after 3pm, having the same bedtime routine, but keeping that a lot shorter if you can, not letting that creep out to be an hour-long routine. Um, Parents of children who are on the spectrum will probably be familiar with a technique called social stories, uh, whereby you draw out a little sequence of what might happen at bedtime um, or whatever social situation it might be. So a social story for a child on the spectrum might be a picture of them having dinner, doing their teeth, getting into their pyjamas, reading a book and then saying time for bed. One of the things is because children on the spectrum can take things very literally, if you say time to go to sleep, they might think they have to go to sleep straight away, within a minute. So you might actually have to say time to go to bed, close your eyes and rest. 
and that might be easier for them to understand. But I think the social stories, and there's a lot of them on the internet around sleep and developing a social story with your child can really help set up the expectations and help to keep some limits perhaps on that bedtime routine that can otherwise just be expanded Mm -hmm. for a long time. Yeah, there's some really nice resources on Autism Speaks. Um, So if you just do a Google search for that, there's really nice visual resources that parents can use to to help to to develop some visual charts around sleep and to really map it out um, for, for young people with autism. And, and they also have um, bedtime passes on there too. So we talked about that in previous episodes where they can have that under their pillow and use that to, to leave the room once. And there's particular ones that they have on there to give you a bit of an example of how to, to develop one with your child. I think the other thing is there's a lot of products sold for sleep full stop, but particularly for children who are on the autism spectrum with sleep problems. And one of the biggest thing has been weighted blankets because children on the spectrum often have some sensory issues and being contained and cocooned can make them feel calmer. Mm. But um, a colleague of ours in the UK did a large trial comparing sleep um, of children on the autism spectrum who had weighted blankets versus not, and he found absolutely no difference in their sleep. So just a little caution to parents, don't go out and buy expensive products. If you if your child does like that sensory thing, maybe just a firm sheet and a doona and a blanket over the top of them rather than buying an expensive weighted blanket might be a better way to go. Do children on the autism spectrum need more or less sleep or is it the same amount? They really need the same amount. They they often don't get it, but they really do need the same amount as their their typically developing peer. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, and the research shows that if if a child with autism also has sleep problems, that it does make everything else worse. So it means that they have more difficulty regulating their emotions during the day, their behaviour is harder to manage, and the, the symptoms of their autism overall are worse. So that certainly indicates that they do need the same amount of sleep um, and and potentially by addressing some of the sleep problems you might see some improvements in day-to-day functioning. And I just uh, yeah, agree Emma and I think um, a note of caution too for children who are a bit further along the spectrum and who may be non-verbal things, physical health things can affect their sleep and they can't actually say I've got a sore ear or I've got a sore throat and so very important if your child's been sleeping pretty well and they suddenly you know stop sleeping well and they're non-verbal take them to your GP, get a thorough physical examination, including their mouth, you know, because often it's hard to get children on the spectrum to the dentist and they can actually have, you know, holes in their teeth or problems, you know, an abscess developing I've seen before. So sometimes you just need a thorough physical examination to rule out anything that might be disturbing them getting to sleep as well. In comparison, we've mentioned that there aren't really any lasting permanent effects for children growing up who aren't on the spectrum. Have you found that there are more lasting effects? I'm not sure if the research is out there for children on the spectrum in terms of long-term effects. Yeah, the the research, there have been a few studies that have looked at how persistent sleep problems are in children with autism and certainly find that if sleep problems are untreated, that they are more likely to persist over time. But these haven't been long-term studies. They're just really, those studies aren't available um, at this point. But I think it's a really interesting area. But I think looking at some of the, the shorter-term studies that have been done have certainly linked um, poorer sleep to poorer um, functioning in kids with autism. And Emma and I are in the middle of finishing off a big study in Melbourne um, of children 
on the autism spectrum with sleep problems, half of whom have got help and support and strategies and the other half haven't. So we're following them up and, you know, funding permitting, but hopefully we can keep following them up and um, have an answer to that question about the, the longer term beyond 12 months sort of effects. So what kind of options do we have when we're addressing these issues? So certainly at the start of the night with the routine, I think the social stories that I've mentioned are, are really invaluable for parents to set up a healthy bedtime routine and and ensure that it doesn't become too long. And it's really the same otherwise as you would treat um you know, typically developing children. So, you know, the if the child will only fall asleep with mum or dad next to them, you've got the choice of camping out or the checking method that we've talked about in the earlier episodes. So the checking method is where you leave your child in their room and come back and check on them, say, after a minute, two minutes, three minutes, and gradually stretching out that time. Or the camping out is when you put your chair or camp bed right next to their bed. You might hold their hand for the first few nights while they fall asleep. The next few nights, you might just sit there and just use your voice to reassure them. And you gradually move that chair or camp bed out of their room about a foot every couple of nights. So it might take, you know, seven to 14 nights to move out. So really, they're the same strategies that we would use to get off to sleep and help a child learn to do that independently. I guess the biggest difference is when they do wake for those two or three hours overnight. And what those um, children on the spectrum have done is they've got two separate blocks of sleep. So they've got their first block of sleep, you know, maybe from 7pm to 1am, then they're awake for two hours and then they have a second block of sleep. And what we need to do is bring those two blocks of sleep back together. So we actually use the technique of bedtime fading, which we've talked about in previous episodes, where we temporarily set that child's bedtime much later because we want the two blocks of sleep to merge together. So if your child's waking at 1am and not getting back to sleep until 3am, you actually might put them to bed at 11pm, which I know just sounds crazy because you're thinking, wow, what am I going to do? But 11pm for two nights and quarter to 11 for the next two nights, then 10.30pm for the next two nights. And what you'll find is they will merge those two blocks of sleep together. And once they've started to do that and they're not up for those two hours overnight, then you just start bringing everything earlier, um, bringing forward their bedtime. And the important thing is leading up to that late, temporary late bedtime, make sure there's no screens, it's a quiet time, quiet activities, looking at books, drawing, anything that you know works to quieten your child down. And again, that's a big commitment for parents, so they need to clear their diaries and make sure they're not going out. But I've had really good success of bringing those two sort of separate sections of sleep together by doing that over a couple of weeks. The great point you made before was that some children who are further along on the spectrum are non-verbal. What are some of the earlier signs that you can see, I guess, to address that and help prevent... Yeah, well, I think it's, it is about setting up really good routines and using, um, they may be nonverbal, but, but they might understand the pictures. So I think wherever your child's, um, um, age is, so what we call their chronological age is their actual age. So maybe they're a 10 year old, 
but their um, cognitive age, their intellectual age might be more like a five-year-old. So you've got to match your strategies to what you do for a five-year-old, mm-hmm. not a 10-year-old, and apply the same strategies as you would do. And certainly I think drawing what you're going to do is a really good way to do it. I sometimes act it out with dolls. So um, I'll have, you know, the child and the parent doll in my room and I will show the child what camping out looks like or what the checking <laughs> method looks like. And that can be mm. a really nice way actually for toddlers who aren't on the spectrum, for example, who aren't, you know, maybe not quite verbal yet, but certainly for children on the spectrum and just showing them what's going to happen can be really helpful. Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's a really important point and a lot of the, the research in sleep and autism has focused on children in the higher functioning range mm. and there really is less um, known about how to improve sleep in children that do have an intellectual disability that, that goes along with their autism. So one of the, the other studies that we're doing at the moment is piloting an intervention that particularly meets the needs of, of children in that, that category and really trying to understand how well these strategies work with that group and getting feedback from parents about the program so that we can hopefully lead to kind of testing it in a bigger study um, and then making that available um, to families too. But it's a real um, difficulty in the area because lots more of the research focuses on the higher uh, functioning range. Yeah, I agree, Emma. And I think there's also some evidence, though, we do know from trials done overseas of children with neurodevelopmental conditions, including autism, that if these behavioural strategies don't work, then melatonin can be really helpful for these kids. Um, We don't exactly know why, but maybe they don't produce enough melatonin or they metabolise it quickly so there's not enough around in their brain. So certainly I usually try these interventions for two or three weeks, the behavioural interventions, and if they don't work, then plan B is melatonin. One of the other bigger special populations is ADHD. How much sleep do they need and is it a totally different case? Do we approach it totally differently to autism and and, and children who aren't on on the spectrum? Yeah, so ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder and it's it's a really common condition that affects about 5% of children and, and that estimate's pretty consistent worldwide. Um, and when we think about that in Australian terms, that means that about 300,000 uh, young people are affected by ADHD. There's it's interesting, ADHD is actually one of the most well-researched conditions of childhood. So we do know a lot about it and there is a body of research now focusing specifically on the overlap between ADHD and sleep difficulties. And similar to really what Harriet's been talking about with autism, sleep problems affect about 70% of, of children with, with ADHD and they children with ADHD need the same amount of sleep as as other kids, um, even though they might be a bit more bouncy and and so on. So, I guess in terms of of what we see with ADHD, so it's a, a pattern of inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. And and in order to to receive a diagnosis of ADHD, we'd really be looking at evidence that those kinds of symptoms are occurring most of the time in multiple settings. It's making it harder to to learn at school or make friends and keep friends and so on. We conducted a study in 2008, um, which is scary that that was over a decade ago, (laughs) Harriet, (laughs) which was actually one of the the first studies in the area to demonstrate the independent impact that sleep problems had for children with ADHD. So if a child had ADHD and a sleep problem, their symptoms of ADHD were worse. So they were more hyperactive, they had poorer attention, they had poorer overall quality of life, 
they had more difficulties with day-to-day functioning. And their parents also reported that their mental health was worse if their child had a sleep problem. So certainly um, the evidence shows that kids with ADHD need the same amount of sleep. If they don't get it, their functioning is worse. And a lot of the similar strategies that Harriet's been talking about um, are the kinds of things you use for children with ADHD. And we've conducted a big study of um, 244 families where half of them received an intervention package. So seeing a clinician about sleep uh, for two sessions um, where we assessed their sleep, um, gave a series of healthy sleep habits. We gave them a tailored management plan, which was around the kind of sleep problems that their child was experiencing. So it could have been tailored around limit setting difficulties or anxiety difficulties or insomnia-based difficulties. Um, And we then looked at whether or not that intervention led to improved outcomes over time. And it did. So we found that the families who received that intervention had reported improved ADHD symptoms in their child. It's important to note that the symptoms were, there were small improvements in symptoms. Treating sleep didn't cure ADHD, but it made it easier (laughs) for families to manage. Um, We saw big improvements in sleep, um, which is important. That's what we're targeting. But we also saw big improvements in overall quality of life and daily functioning. And we found that that the children who received the intervention had improved working memory too, um, which is working memory is an essential um, thing needed for, for academic learning. Um, and we found benefits that persisted up to 12 months later. And we've recently completed another trial where we've trained up paediatricians and psychologists in Victoria and Queensland to incorporate this intervention into their daily practice and found similar um, large improvements in sleep too. Yeah, and I think the beauty of this, this was just two sessions with the practitioner, so it wasn't a lengthy intervention, um, so it's exciting. And actually, Emma and I have just finished writing a book around sleep and ADHD, which is a fantastic evidence-based guide to assessing and treating sleep problems in children with ADHD. It's largely designed for clinicians and researchers, but I think parents who um, want to get into more detail would find it really um, of use and it's interesting. It's a big book. and no, it's. That, uh, <laughs> So that is a good thing. A lot of, you know. <laughs> well, we've really, you know, tackled it from, you know, from birth through to adulthood, actually, this issue. And we've tackled behavioural and medical sleep problems in kids with ADHD and adults with ADHD. And we've really looked at the evidence behind what does and doesn't work. So it is, uh, it's a book for parents who want to go a bit deeper, I think, but certainly also for clinicians and researchers with a lot of international authors there. Mm. On the improvement what sort of symptoms do you, apart from the working memory, what sort of symptoms do you find improve? And do you think that you said that it was only two sessions? Would you think that it would be a, more of a snowball effect because their behavioural symptoms are improving, then that would roll have a roll-on effect to being able to get to sleep better and then so forth? Yeah. So one of the things that we did in this study um, was look at, first of all, how much of improvement in sleep we saw. And we actually um, looked at how much of kind of the improvements that we were seeing were via improving sleep. And some of the symptoms were, you know, inattention, not being able to pay attention, being disorganised and so on, being hyperactive and impulsive. And we found that 
part of the improvement that we were seeing in those ADHD symptoms was via sleep, by you know a direct improvement in sleep. But we, we found that there was uh, another proportion that wasn't explained by improving sleep. And it's hard for us to know exactly what that is, but one of the things that we, we think might be happening is that we're teaching our families and children active management strategies around rules and consistency and, and really parenting type behaviours. And we're wondering if our families were able to generalise that and use those kinds of strategies for other aspects of the child's life that weren't only related to sleep. Yeah, so they were learning to set limits around their child's sleep and then taking that to setting limits around the child's behaviour mm-hmm. as well as what we're thinking. Yeah, but it's really interesting in the in the area of ADHD and sleep. So we, there's, we know that the sleep problems appear to increase um, compared to children without ADHD from about the age of two. And we see continued um, high levels of sleep problems in childhood, adolescence, and even into adulthood, because despite what misconceptions about ADHD, it persists into adulthood for about 60% people. So um, so sleep problems continue to be a problem in adulthood uh, for this group. It's not known why kids with ADHD have this increased risk for sleep problems. There's no one cause. It could be that there are the pathways in the brain that relate to sleep, attention, arousal, they're overlapping. So that might be a reason why we see increases in sleep problems in this group. Another thing that can impact on sleep problems are having an anxiety disorder, for example, and we know that anxiety is also elevated in kids with ADHD. I mean, some of our research shows that the other things that go along with ADHD, like anxiety or significant behavioural difficulties, seem to be a pretty strong predictor of sleep problems in this group. But the other one that's, I guess, a bit special to this population is the use of stimulant medication. And we know from um, studies that stimulant medication does result in a slight increase in insomnia um, that seems to be short-lived, but that could be a contributing factor. But it's important to note that kids with ADHD that don't take medication also still have Im- increased sleep problems. So it can't be the only cause. Yeah, I think that's spot on, Emma. And it's 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 a very individual case by case. Um, so if your child has ADHD and they're on stimulant medication, as Emma said, when we first start on stimulant medication, we start with very low doses to try and avoid insomnia as a side effect. And then we build up over a few weeks to the required dose that the child needs. And if they still have insomnia, it's thought to be one of two things. Either it's a medic, you know, caused by the medication or it's because the medication's wearing off at around four o'clock in the afternoon and the child gets a rebound of their ADHD symptoms before bedtime, a bit like a second wind, and that stops them going to sleep. So sometimes the treatment is changing the dose of the medication or sometimes it's giving a small amount of short-acting Ritalin which lasts around four hours as opposed to the long-acting Ritalin, which can last eight to 12 hours. But giving a short-acting Ritalin um, just at around 4pm in the afternoon to take the edge off the rebound of ADHD symptoms, which then actually sort of counterintuitively helps the child get off to sleep better. So I think that's really important to know that if your child's got insomnia and they're on the Ritalin or other sort of stimulant medication, that to speak to your treating doctor about changing you know, either the dose or giving them a small amount at 4pm can actually help. Mm. I'll I'll ask this question again, but for the ADHD Mm. population, do you think that there is lasting and permanent effects when they're in bad sleep cycles? 
Yeah, we don't have good long-term evidence of that. We we conducted a study um, a few years ago that looked at um, how persistent um, sleep problems were in, in children with ADHD and what the impact of sleep problems were on functioning. But that was only done over a 12-month period. But that study did show that sleep problems were really common in, in kids with ADHD. So some were persistent, so some had sleep problems at all time points. But for some other kids with ADHD, they might not have had sleep problems at one time point, but they were likely to develop sleep problems over time. And so that study indicated that if you you do have a child with ADHD and you're going along to see um, a paediatrician or a psychologist, that checking in regularly about sleep is important because it's not fixed. It can change naturally um, without intervention. But we did find that sleep problems in that group was associated with poorer outcomes on average 12 months later. But we need um, more long-term research to really understand that. Um, We're about to start a new trial, which is testing out the the sleep strategies that we talked about in a previous episode for adolescents, in adolescents with ADHD in particular. The research that I was talking about before where we showed improved outcomes associated with treating sleep problems was um, conducted with younger children. Uh, it was very much a parent-driven intervention, but we had children's input too. But as we've discussed previously, sleep is very different in adolescents and requires more adolescent management um, and requires a different set of strategies to to look at improving sleep in that population. And for adolescents with ADHD, we still see about 70% that experience sleep problems. So so we've just received some research funding to test this out in a in a big trial and we'll be recruiting adolescents into that trial over the next 18 months. So another um, problem we see in children with ADHD related to sleep and, and more than in kids without ADHD is restless legs syndrome. And I'll talk about that a bit more in a later episode. But basically it's where um, at sleep onset, um, the children get a funny feeling in their legs. It might be feeling like pins and needles or like ants crawling up their legs. And they actually need to move their legs to relieve that sensation. So it's known as restless legs syndrome. And it typically happens at sleep onset rather than overnight. We don't really know what causes it. It's associated with low iron levels. So it's definitely worth going to see your um, doctor and getting your chip to have a blood test and get their iron levels checked because there is some um, evidence that treating um, low iron levels reduces the symptoms of restless legs um, at the start of the night. Um, And there's also some evidence that moderate physical activity sort of in the late afternoon, not just before sleep, but late afternoon can also relieve the symptoms. But if your child, you know, is just saying, I can't get to sleep because I'm just having to move my legs all the time to make them feel okay, then that's that's restless leg syndrome. That's definitely something worth getting checked out and treated. Is all of this information in your book? It is all in our book. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> all the different behavioural and medical causes of sleep Where issues. can people find it? So it's available online. If you just probably the easiest thing is to Google sleep and ADHD and our names, Emma Shaberis and Harriet Hiscock, and it's um, published by Elsevier Academic Press. Perfect. Sleep was presented by Harriet Hiscock and Emma Shaberis and produced by me, Matt Dwyer. Audio production done by Darcy Thompson and our executive producer is Jen Goggin. For more apps, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app and listen for free.